go. Good morning. Good morning. We'll be in Psalm chapter 90, if you want to turn there. Fix that. All right. Psalm 90. Sorry, I got to adjust everything. I'll go ahead and read that. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as, we have afflict, as, you have, as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, as we open your word to hear you speak to us, let us remember that your words are living and active. Help us set aside every sin that so easily entangles, setting our hope on Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. In the coming moments, keep us safe from all distractions of the flesh and from vain thoughts which come from the evil one, that we may hear your word without hindrance. Glory to you, O Father, and to your Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. First question you're probably wondering is, why such a sad, (laughs) somber psalm on New Year's Day? Uh, I think it was subliminal, meaning it's something in the recesses of my mind is why I picked this. Because when I was told I was preaching January 1st, to me that's not like a significant day. That's just a date on the calendar. I didn't think of it as New Year's Day. And I said, oh, I'll preach on Psalm 90. I love Psalm 90. And then I realized, oh, it's New Year's Day. And then I realized, wow, this is a very somber psalm for New Year's Day. But I'd already made the decision. So I stuck with it. I was like, man, you know, maybe... God was at work in that, me not even remembering that it's New Year's Day. And New Year's Day to me, and this is why it's subliminal, New Year's Day to me is not that exciting. <laughs> I, I actually don't look forward that much with much excitement for the new year. I just, the way I'm wired, I more look back with kind of sorrow that another year has passed. And now 2022 is in the past, never ever to be repeated again. That's very sad to me because I, I don't like new things or change. And so stepping out of one year into another is kind of depressing for me. So maybe that's why I picked such a depressing psalm. But the psalm and New Year's Day have very similar goals 
they reflect on the passage of time. Granted, they reflect on the passage of time in quite different ways. Whether it's in Psalm 90, you probably noticed all the emphasis on time all throughout the psalm. Whether it's talking about generation to generations, evening to morning, a thousand years to the Lord, numbering our days, the length of life, uh, how the Lord perceives time, or those first words from everlasting to everlasting. All of time is in view of Psalm 90. So Psalm 90 is like New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. It is a reflection on time itself. It is quite somber, and I do promise there is quite a happy ending, but we kind of have to, to trudge through the somber bits first, which might be hard for some of you because it's very hard for me. I don't like thinking about somber or sad things, but it is sobering. It is something that Psalm 90 leads us to. You'll notice in the prescript to the psalm, it says a prayer of Moses. Now, that is inspired. That's not just something the ESV or NIV added. That is from the original Hebrew manuscripts, a psalm of Moses, which means that if this is a psalm of Moses, this is the oldest psalm by a few centuries, which is so interesting to me that the psalm that reflects so deeply on the passage of time and the Lord's relation to it is the oldest psalm in the Bible. This is one of the earliest biblical writings ever if it was written by Moses. It means it's written back when Genesis to Deuteronomy was written when Moses was alive. This is an ancient, ancient psalm, but it is not simple. It's a very old psalm, but I, I kind of see it as this jewel that sparkles when the light hits it, and every time you turn it, you see the light catching the jewel from a slightly different angle, and that's kind of my way to say we won't be able to cover everything in the psalm. It's just a really artsy illustration to say we're going to cover a few verses in it because it's so dense, but it is a beautiful psalm. Every time you read through it, it's like it's doing something different than it did the last time. The most important verse in the psalm is that first one. I see it as this anchor that holds us in place whenever the psalm starts saying really sad things. It's like north on a compass when you don't know which way is north, and the, the north is always north on a compass when you don't know which way you're facing. It's like a lighthouse in a storm that shows you where the coast is even when you can't see it, which is a way to say keep the first verse in view no matter how somber and sobering this psalm can be. It says, Lord, you have been our refuge in all generations. I say refuge because some translations say refuge, some say dwelling place. Of course, they're meaning the same thing, translating from the same word. But a refuge is different from a dwelling place. And the connotation of it is that he is a refuge. Many people have dwelling places that wouldn't consider their dwelling place a refuge. Many children grow up in children's homes and wouldn't consider that a refuge, although that is a dwelling place. People sleep under cardboard boxes on the side of a street. That is their dwelling place, no matter how meager, but they wouldn't consider that a refuge. Because a refuge is somewhere you feel safe. A refuge is somewhere you feel secure and stable. A refuge is a place you do not have to be business professional all the time. <clears throat> a refuge is somewhere you can be vulnerable, be honest, and be loved without pretense from anyone else. So dwelling place isn't just equal to a refuge. The idea of it is that it is a refuge, a safe haven for us. But the most important word in that verse is you. Notice that it is not that 
Lord, you have given us a dwelling place or a refuge. Lord, you are our refuge. It is not just that he gives us a home and a dwelling place. Thank you, Lord, for our home. It's that, Lord, you yourself are our refuge. You are the refuge. Which then, if that's the case, that is independent of circumstance. It's not that he gives us a refuge and hopefully our dwelling place feels like a refuge. No, it's regardless of if we even have a dwelling place, he is our refuge. If your home gets taken away from you, if you feel insecure, unstable at your home, he is still your refuge independent of circumstance. And if he is our refuge, he is therefore not a few things. By defining something as something, you therefore exclude other things. If he is our refuge, he's therefore not some king in a castle far away who issues edicts to a nation from time to time. You never actually hear from or see. You just hear from him kind of indirectly. If he's a refuge to us, he himself is a refuge to us. He's not like a pilot on a plane who you kind of hear his voice over the intercom from time to time, but you never see them, maybe at the beginning and end, but you can talk to the flight attendants if you need something. That's not a refuge. No one would see a pilot on a plane as a refuge for them. If he's a refuge, that means he's a God we run toward, not a God we run from. He is our refuge. What is fascinating to me is of all the man-made belief systems and faiths and religions of the world, from the Persians to Greeks to Romans, from Buddhism to Hinduism, none other than Christianity has been as bold as to claim that their God is a personal refuge for them. No Greek thousands of years ago would have considered Zeus to be a refuge for them. He's some god up in the sky who holds lightning bolts. No Roman would consider Jupiter to be a refuge for them. That is a bold, radical claim for Christianity to claim that God is a personal refuge for us. But that is the central narrative of all of Scripture, that God has come to be a refuge and a safe dwelling place for us to come live with us. But it's so bizarre how I know this and then so often I still pray thanking God that he has given me a dwelling place instead of thanking God that he is my refuge personally in spite of where my dwelling place may or may not be. Now, thanking God for your home is good, clearly. Thanking God for gifts is good. But so often I, I eclipse that in light of seeing the Lord himself as my refuge regardless of circumstance. Keep that in mind. That is our anchor because we're about to head through the dark fog of Psalm 90. And when you don't know which way is up or which way is north, remember your cup is or remember your anchor. This whole psalm is built from this point on on contrasting thoughts. The whole psalm kind of violently takes us back and forth from looking at God, looking at us, looking at God, looking at us. And what he's about to contrast is this reality of our human condition with God's eternal nature. That's what he says in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I think that's Moses reflecting on his experience at the burning bush. He approaches the burning bush, takes off his sandals because it's holy ground. He asks God his name. <laughs> it's a funny story. It's beautiful and bold, but he gives him a sentence for a name. Echeh, Esher, Echeh. I am who I am, I was who I was, I will be who I will be. So he asks for his name and he gives him a, pair, a theological paragraph. It's like, you can't just have a simple name. 
But his name in that sense is a theological statement about his nature. I am who I am, who I want to be. I am, it's called self-existence. I completely exist in myself. Now you cannot say that about yourself. I am because I ate food this morning. I am because I continue to breathe. And the second I stop continuing to breathe, I no longer am. I'm not self-existent. I don't exist because I choose to exist. I exist because at one point my mother gave birth to me and nursed me and took care of me. And then I'm still trying to figure out how to take care of myself as you get older. I am because we're barely getting through in life. We need so many things. I am the furthest thing from self-existent. But he contrasts that with God from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. From before creation into eternity in the future, he has always been self-existent, never needing anything or anyone. Yet, don't forget, he is our refuge. That is the contrast of all of this. He, he takes these two attributes of the Lord that seem so conflicting, puts them right up against each other, and just makes you think about it. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You're completely self-existent. You are the God of the burning bush. You have never needed anything, yet you have been our refuge in all generations. How can, these, how can these two things mix together and make sense with one another? It seems to make no sense how God can be infinite but personal, how he can be eternal but also come and choose to be our refuge, our dwelling place. That is what we just celebrated with Christmas. You probably heard that reference from Isaiah often pulled up again during Christmas time. Emmanuel, we know what it means, God with us. That's the whole point of the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is God dwelling with man. From the temple to the tabernacle to Christ's incarnation, it's always been about God with us. That is what houses the whole story of Matthew. Matthew is born, and they say, Emmanuel, God with us. And the book of Matthew ends, Christ saying, surely I am with you to the very end of the ages. The whole story's always been about Emmanuel, about God being with us to be our refuge. God with us is, Emmanuel is shocking. Compared to other religions, it's bold to even claim such a thing. That yes, God is... Uh, upset at our sin, but he's also been a refuge. Yes, he is outside of time, but has also chosen to be personal and a refuge to us. Yes, the God, God created the world, and the very creator of the world entered into the world he created to be a refuge for us. Now, Moses does something very haunting in verse 3. He says, you. <laughs> the biblical writers love to do this, and it drives me crazy. Paul does this frequently. He'll say something grand and bold about the, the preeminence of Christ, and then Colossians 2 is, but you, and then it's just a list of very bad things. You are dead in your sin, walking in the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's this horrible contrast to get you to see how great the Lord is and how dirty and rotten we can be. He says, but you return man to the dust. You say, return, O children of man, of clearly invoking the Genesis 3 curse of Adam, from dust you came, to dust you will return. It's for this reason that this psalm is dangerous. It's dangerous because if you don't see it correctly, it can lead you into despair. It's supposed to bring you to your knees in humility that he takes these contrasting thoughts, the eternality of God, and puts it right up against 
the fact that we are from dust and will return to dust. It brings you to your knees saying, who on earth am I? Who do I think that I am? From everlasting to everlasting, you're God. But you say to us, return, O children of man, to the dust from which you came. It can lead to despair. But remember, he is our refuge. Remember the first verse as our anchor that will keep us from drifting off course into despair. This balance of having humility without despair has been a difficult one for humans for thousands of years. And this is something the Bible has constantly led us in toward. And we, sometimes we've had trouble balancing the two. Humble gratitude while understanding the Lord is our refuge. The best example I've seen of this is, and I cannot remember where I got this from, uh, but I, I, it was always in the back of my mind about Psalm 90 until now, but it took so long to actually use this illustration, I forgot where I got it from. So it's, it's preacher plagiarism. But an, it was this man who wanted to balance these two things, the humility of man, but how God is our refuge. So in one pocket, he put a note that said the Genesis 3:19 curse, from dust you came to dust you will return. So every time he pulled out his phone, he, he would also pull out this note that reminded him, you are dust and you will return to dust. That's humbling, possibly despairing. That's why he put in the other pocket the note from Psalm 8. What is mankind that you are mindful of him? You have made man a little bit lower than the angels. That is, I love that mindset of balancing these two things, humility but gratitude that the Lord has chosen to be a refuge for us. So Psalm 90 then creates this paradigm causing us, urging us to question what kind of God becomes a refuge for dust people. That is the beauty of Christmas. It's God choosing to be a refuge for people who he's going to send back to the dust one day. What kind of God would waste his time on dust people? What, kind of, what, what is God doing being born into the very humanity he brought from the dust? Why does he care about us so much? Verse 4 then shifts the attention right back to the Lord. From seeing us as dust, it shifts it back. And, and verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away, sweep them away, the thousand years, as with a flood. They're like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Another haunting contrast. He takes it from us as dust, pulls it back to the Lord and says, yes, but a thousand years to God is like a day. Or even shorter than a day. He says in verse 4, as a watch in the night, which is four hours. That's like you fall asleep at midnight and you wake up to go to the bathroom at 4 a.m., but to the Lord a thousand years has passed. That's what it feels like to him. Blink of an eye. They're like a dream. You wake up and the dream seems so vivid and real and you wake up 20 minutes later, you can't even remember the dream. That's what a thousand years is like to the Lord. Or in verse 5, it is like grass that is so strong and vibrant in the morning because of the morning dew, but by the evening the sun has scorched it and it withers. And that subtle transition from morning to evening, that's a thousand years to the Lord. Remember, he is our refuge. This God who perceives time in this way has chosen to love dust people. Again, he shifts the attention back to us, back forth, back and forth. And then in verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger. 
By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is all but toil and trouble. And they are soon gone and we fly away. So this contrast and another contrast is how the Lord perceives 1,000 years versus our meager lives that are spent in toil and trouble. He does a, quite a funny thing, but very, it's funny to laugh away how somber it is. He puts 1,000 years to the Lord beside our life expectancy. So Moses looks around and says, you know, people in general live to 70 or, man, they can really muscle it out to 80. He might say of us, you know, by reason of medical intervention, we might get to our 90s, praise God, or Every once in a while, you'll see someone, God willing, break the 100-year mark. But the point is, who cares? The point is that even, either way, they're mostly toil and trouble. You can live a long 70, 80, 90, 100-year life, but most of it is just dealing with problems. You sleep a third of your life. You work half of your life. You're washing dishes again, doing laundry again. You're getting your car checked again because that sound won't go away. You have to go to the doctor again because your knee keeps clicking. Most of our life is just spent in toil and trouble, even if we live a long time by human standards. Compare that with the Lord. 70, 80 years spent, 90 years spent in toil and trouble. But to him, a thousand years is like a dream or a watch in the night. But remember, he is our refuge. <laughs> Lest that be too despairing. Sometimes the line between humility and despair is quite thin. So I think that's why that has to be our anchor, that first verse. Not to even mention in verse 7 that dust people have sinned against an eternal God. <laughs> Not only does he create Adam, man, from the dust, the dust then turns and rebels against him trying to be like God, which was the serpent's promise. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you'll be like gods. Not dust people. Now this dust people has tried to take God's throne saying we want to be like God. Who do we think we are as dust people who will return to the dust rebelling against an almighty God who sits outside of time from everlasting to everlasting is God. But that sparks another question. If he is our refuge, what on earth is God doing hanging on a cross, dying for dust people who have sinned against an eternal God? Keep it together. <laughs> it can only be resolved knowing that he is a God of love. It's the only reason any of this makes sense. He is a God of love. The incarnation and the life of Christ and the cross and the resurrection, dying and raising to defeat death for people from the dust only makes sense if he is a God of radical love. So that's the point of the first half of the psalm. All of the first half is to humble us. It is to reorient us. Some psalms worship, some psalms encourage, some psalms warm, some reflect. This one reorients. It's sobering. It sobers us up. It gets you paying attention immediately to what is really important in life. It sobers you up at the, the brevity of our life. It sobers us by getting us to look at how short of a life we have and how certain death is. It would be criminal for Moses to leave us here, though. <laughs> that, would be, that would be quite despairing. In verse 12, that serves as the climax, then, of the psalm. He doesn't leave us on a low note. The climax of the psalm is so, and there should be a so there. It's there in Hebrew. So, teach us to number our days 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So what do we do, Moses? If God is eternal and we are from the dust, if the, re- the, the span of our life is toil and trouble for 70 to 90, 100 years, what do we do? The whole psalm hinges on one word, mana, number. So this is what you should do, number our days. Or Lord, teach us to number our days. That word, mana, number, translated here, it's like the word account, give an account for. It's not, it's not saying count, try to count how many days you have left living. The point is to reflect and number the days you have left to make them count for something. It is to rec- it's the word for reckon, often translated. It's to give an account for the days we have left. So what he's saying is, Lord, teach us to give an account for our days because they are so short and we don't know how many we have left. There is an eternal, eternal uniqueness to every day. Some days will seem like other days, but they're not. There's an, this day, January 1st, 2023, is eternally unique. That's why I get so sad about New Year's, because 2022 is eternally unique. It will never return. There are many days like it, but this one is eternally unique. This day will come and go. 2022 has come and gone. And we shouldn't ask ourselves, what did we accomplish in 2022? But what account to the Lord can I give for 2022? Because as Paul says in Romans 14, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not give an account for uh, achieving our personal goals. He will call us to account for how we use our days. He will not say, okay, what did you get in 2022? Did you start that new business? Did you, did you hit your weight loss goals? No, he will say, how did you use the days that I gave you? We will give an account to him. What Christ says in Luke, or Matthew rather, we will give an account to him for even every careless word we speak. Teach us, Lord, to do that now already. Another illustration I cannot remember the origins of. I'm sorry, I keep plagiarizing this morning. But it's been in my mind for years now. The best example I've seen of this is a a man who wanted to keep this in his mind. Teach us to give an account for our days. So he bought thousands of marbles that would total up the amount of days until he reached 80. He put them in these like hundreds of jars throughout his study. So when he walked into a study, there's just like jars of marbles everywhere. It's like, okay, weird collection to be interested in, but okay. But the point is, every morning he would go into his study to pray. He would take out a marble and he would pray, Lord, teach me to give an account for my days. He would go on in his life, go to work serve others, do whatever, live his normal life, and he'd come back at the end of his day and he'd take that marble out of his pocket and he would give an account to the Lord for that day. Lord, this is where I failed you. I'm sorry. Lord, this is where you gave me the strength to obey you. Thank you. He would give an account to the Lord for each and every single day. The point is, no matter the answer, no matter the account you give, you throw the marble away. That is haunting. You cannot get to the end of the day and say, I, I didn't use this marble very well. Lord, I, I was dominated by the passions of the flesh today. I disobeyed you so much today. Lord, I did not give a good account for the day. Lord, I'm going to keep this marble till tomorrow. It's not how it works. There's an eternal uniqueness to each day. Lord, teach us to give an account for our days. What Moses is doing is by getting us to dwell on the brevity of our own life and the certainty 
of our return to the dust is that he's trying to get us to remember death. Remember that we will die. Happy New Year. (laughs) Remember the brevity of our own life and that death is certain. That's why this psalm actually specifically has been for hundreds of years now in many traditions read at funerals. Not for the sake of the dead, but for the living that are there present. That you look into a casket to someone who will soon return to the dust, and then the reader says, teach us to number our days, Lord. Teach us to number our days. Sober us in this moment. Remind us of the certainty of death that we are often so separated and distant from remembering. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. If you are someone who, like me, likes to avoid sadness or somber thought, this is a very challenging psalm. That's why I keep having to use this whole week humor to break up the monotony of the somber reflection on this psalm. is because I can't handle thinking about something sad for that long. But I encourage you, if you're like me, to run toward this psalm, not from it. Let it sober you. Because it is better to be sober-minded dwelling on our own death that is certain than to be drunken-minded living as if we're not going to die. It is better always to be sober-minded. Also, remember the word Remember. Remember isn't just a shocking realization that, oh my goodness, I'm going to die one day. I forgot about that. No, remember is a deep contemplative focus and meditation on something that is true so that it shapes you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh yeah, I forgot Christ died on the cross. No, it's deeply focused on it. Let it shape you. So remember death. Dwell on it. Remember that it is certain and let it shape how you live in the present. When you remember death, many things happen. When you remember it accurately, meditate on it, the certainty of it, what happens is it puts to death the pleasures of the flesh. They don't seem that strong anymore or important because you're going to die. What it does is the temptations of the evil one become pointless. What are you going to tempt me with? I'm going to die one day. When you remember that, it encourages repentance, knowing that our life has an end, that we don't know when that will occur. Remembering death urges us to live by right priorities and what, for what really matters in life. Consider this in Luke 12, the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool. Christ told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, oh, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my excess grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get the things that you have prepared for yourself? That is Psalm 90. That's a lived parable of Psalm 90. He forgets death. He says, oh, I got grain laid up for many years. Let's just take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He forgets death, and God says, you fool. You thought you were going to live forever. Because when you forget death, you begin to live as if you're never going to die. That's why as humans we must always remember, to dust we will return. Because when you forget death, you begin to say things like this rich fool. I got grain laid up for many years. Let's take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, eat, drink, and be merry is always used in Scripture of someone who is hopeless because they see no point to existence. 
Ecclesiastes, 1 Thessalonians, because they forget the second coming. And here, he doesn't see a point of anything outliving himself. So let's just take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, because nothing matters. This is the attitude Psalm 90 is trying to corral in and keep us from, living like this, like we are immortal. What can Satan do to you if you remember death? What temptation can he have that can do anything if you remember your own death? And that we will be accountable to the Lord for our days. I did see in the news recently a man, probably pretty well known now, on death row, finding out he was to inherit millions of dollars. But he's on death row. Who cares? It's, it's paper. You can use the millions of dollars as tissues. Who cares? It's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. I'm going to die. That's the same for us. What temptations from the evil one can persist? They're impotent if we remember that we are on death row. You are that man on death row. You have been sentenced to death in Adam. To dust we will return. It is certain. So the question then is, how will we number our days? How will we give an account to the Lord for our days? Or will we withdraw from that and say, hey, life is short. Let's do whatever we want. Do whatever makes you happy. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die from Ecclesiastes. Part of learning to number our days, and I do love that he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. This is difficult. It has to be taught by the Lord directly how to number our days. Lord, teach us because this is difficult. I don't want to think about sad things. You must teach me how to ponder death. <clears throat> the danger of all this then is escapism. If the goal is remembering the brevity of life, remembering that death is certain, what the evil one then wants to tempt us with is escapism. Escaping the thought of that, distracting us from ever remembering that so that like the rich fool, we forget that we will be accountable to the Lord one day. And so that the Lord has to remember him, he's going to die because he wouldn't remember himself. He would not remind himself of that. So often we are trying to run from death. Most of what is marketed and sold is trying to distract you from death. You realize that, right? I was at the gym the other day watching the TV all the countless commercials, and almost all of them were trying to either distract you from death or get you to think about something else so you don't think about death or, or trying to ease the effects of oncoming death called aging. All of it is trying to get us away from that. It's escapism. It's distracting ourselves from what is important in life. It's pacifying ourselves with entertainment. That's escapism. Not all entertainment. Pacifying ourselves with entertainment to avoid the thought of coming death. It's exchanging what is eternally significant for what's temporarily amusing. It's escapism. <clears throat> so we must ask ourselves then one question. The very question the evil one wants us to avoid. <clears throat> Where in our life are we given to escapism? This is a nuanced answer I can't answer for you. Sometimes I feel like I can't really even answer for myself. Not talking about good God-given activities that we enjoy, gardening, stuff like that. Remember, it was Sabbath and holidays that was God's idea in the Old Testament, right? Not saying you should never take a rest day. That was his idea. God himself took a rest day. But what may be a hobby or activity for one person may be an escapist habit for another, trying to avoid, avoid the reality of death that is coming. It's far more nuanced than we give credit. But like David in Psalm 139, we must cry to the Lord, search me, Lord. Search my heart and show if there's any iniquity in me so that I may receive eternal life. 
So you are being tempted with this somewhere in your life, I promise. Part of temptation is recognizing the temptation because until you do that, well, Satan's winning. <laughs> you have to recognize where you're being tempted, acknowledge it as temptation, and address it as such. Yes, there's the extreme example, drugs or alcohol, escaping into drugs or alcohol. But dare I say there is very often much more culturally accepted forms of escapism that we turn a blind eye to because it's merely a hobby sometimes. I say this first and foremost to myself who can be lost mindlessly scrolling or endlessly watching or aimlessly binging. Escapism, something that can be a hobby can turn into escapism. The best way I've seen this pictured is um, on Mount Athos. It's a crypt where thousands of Christians are buried. I blurted out to not scare any kids. Those are all skulls. <laughs> I thought the kids were going to class today, I'm going to be honest, but apparently they're not, so it's a little bit awkward. Uh, but though it's a crypt, and when you walk in, what you see above the crypt is this message. Remember us, brethren. What you are, we once were. And what we now are, you will surely become. And suddenly when you walk in under that message to this crypt, the cares of the world don't seem as important. Temptations don't seem as strong. The passions of the flesh don't seem as tempting. Remember us. You will be like us one day. This is Psalm 90 in a picture. Remember death. By the way, those of you who have been graced with more years than others from the Lord, who have been blessed with 70, 80, 90 years of life, I've been told you naturally start thinking about death more than others, just as a habit of being alive for longer than others. I would encourage you to run towards that, not escape from it. Dare I give into a presumption and think I have any right to tell you what it's like being 80 or 90. I have no idea. But based on Psalm 90, I would encourage you to run towards that and teach these youth groupers and college students what it is like to age with grace and remember death and how to live in obedience. Because life is short and they are so prone, like myself, to be given into escapism, forgetting that we will die. Finally, the psalm gets happier, okay? There is a, a final good, a positive note in verse uh, 13 through 17. He says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as, we, as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's so bizarre. The final note in the psalm just takes a completely different turn. Now it's gladness and rejoicing. How can dwelling on the certainty of returning to the dust then produce gladness and celebration? Did you forget? Because he is our refuge. That's why he can end the psalm say, not saying, well, who cares about life then? He can end the psalm saying, Lord, establish the work of our hands with gladness and rejoicing. Show us your steadfast love because he is our refuge from everlasting to everlasting. Because there's two ways to remember death. We don't just remember death in isolation, but we remember death and focus on it with the hope of eternal life with the hope and belief that he is our refuge from everlasting to everlasting in all generations. We don't think and remember death in a vacuum, but because he is our refuge with the hope of eternal life, we remember death. Because the world does, granted, remember death often. Yet, 
if you remember death without hope of eternal life, it devolves into escapism or nihilism or eat, drink, and be merry, saying nothing matters. There's a way to remember death that is worldly, and it is to forget the hope of eternal life. But remembering death with the hope of eternal life causes humble gratitude because we know death doesn't win because our eternal God came to dust people and defeated death on a cross. That's why we can look forward to death and remembering death with the hope of eternal life. And I love this last line. Establish the work of our hands. To the world, this makes zero sense. Establish the work of our hands after a psalm just saying, you're going to die one day and remember that. But with the hope of eternal life, this makes perfect sense. His conclusion is not, life is short, do whatever you want because nothing matters. That's the rich fool. His conclusion is rather, if life is short and death is certain and eternal life is our hope, Lord, make our works be worthwhile and outlive ourselves. Establish the works of our hands to generations in this short life. He doesn't give up hope at the end. He prays, asking the Lord to establish his work for generations that they may outlive himself. So remembering death with hope of eternal life causes you to see this present moment and day and year as eternally significant, not meaningless. Remembering death without the hope of eternal life flings us into despair, saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So finally, I'll ask you, you have to ask yourself, search me, O Lord, what works are you doing that will outlive yourself? Or like the rich fool is your hope in this life only. And ask the Lord, please teach us, Lord, to number our days. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord, I pray that we would always remember that from dust we came, and to dust we will surely return. But we have the hope of eternal life because Christ came and defeated death for us. So remind us, Lord, of the shortness of life. Remind us that death is certain for everyone and teach us, O oh Lord, to number our days that we may give an account of each day to you. I pray that you would establish the works of our hands, that we may do works that outlive ourselves to generations. May we not live as those who have no hope like the rich fool. Rather, Lord, may we gain a heart of wisdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen.